0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's special forum. Violence in our society, we live with it every day, and it often strikes close to home. Violence against women in our society, it's an ugly fact of our common life. One out of every four women will be assaulted, physically violated, in some manner during her lifetime, unless things change. Just one section of last Tuesday's local newspaper carried these three headlines. Man guilty of assaulting one-and-a-half-year-old baby girl. Seventy-four-year-old pleads guilty in sex crimes against young girls man-held after wife shot in Maplewood Bar. Violence in our society, violence against women in our society, and yes, what about the media in all of it? What part do TV and radio and other communication vehicles play in all of this? How negative is the impact? Is there a constructive role for the media in all of this. From broad to specific that is our agenda today. Having thus gotten your attention you need to know that on this occasion you are listening to a town hall forum originating from the Marriott City Center on South 7th Street in downtown Minneapolis. Your co-sponsors today are the Westminster Town Hall Forum, and the Violence Against Women Coalition, a project of the Junior League of Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, forum moderator. And the person here to address us, yes, to engage us, is Faith Daniels, news anchor for the NBC Today Show and A Closer Look, the uh, network midday news program. Before going with CBS, she had varying roles as anchor, reporter, assignment editor in places such as Wheeling, West Virginia, Peoria, Illinois, will it fly in Peoria, Uh, Columbus, Ohio, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Uh, Pittsburgh she counts as home. She's an active supporter of the National Committee for Adoption, and she is married and has two young children. I said at the beginning that often violence strikes close to home. Case in point, the rape, beating, and death of Minneapolis junior leaguer Mary Foley in a Minneapolis parking ramp on a sunny afternoon, June 2nd, 1988. This tragedy stirred the league as prodded by Mary Foley's sister, Ellen, who is also of the league to form the Violence Against Women Coalition, which is dedicated A, to exploring society's attitudes that result in women becoming victims of violence, B, to educating society about the issues and the need for change, education, and to establishing a community agenda that mobilizes people and resources to address this issue on an ongoing and proactive basis. Addressing the issue today, Faith Daniels, Violence Against Women, The Media Perspective.
1: Thank you, Dr. Meisel, and and thank all of you for such a a warm Twin Cities welcome. I can't tell you how much I feel at home here. I've seen so many similarities between Minneapolis and Pittsburgh where I grew up. Good people here, sort of that uh, hey, how you doing kind of spirit, the way I grew up, and and that's wonderful. I think that's that's a, a tribute to all of you who live here. I am so impressed by the turnout today and that you would all come. I can take it as flattery, but I think that the issue brought you in more than than me. You know, one of the first things that that I did last night when I landed was head to Mary Richards' home. (laughs) I wanted to see exactly where the girl who turned the world on with her smile lived. Actually, it was the producer who was with me who demanded to see it. He embarrasses me everywhere we go. Then today, I went over to Paisley Park to see where Prince lived. And Prince wasn't there, but I, I did meet his cat, Paisley. And in fact, many of the long hairs that are on this suit today are not mine, but Paisley's. Normally, when I get out and, and I do things like this, I really enjoy it on two levels. I get, I get to get out and meet the people who watch us do what we do on a, on a daily basis. And, you know, admittedly, I also get to sleep in but I think they've wised up to me in New York because today they didn't allow me to sleep in, they made me do the Today Show from here. (laughs) Katie's been on maternity leave, so I've been pinch-hitting for her. She's taken the last few weeks off before the baby is due and taking a rather graceful exit. Much more graceful than my departure with my two. I knew it was time to go when they brought the cherry picker in to get me off the sofa. (laughs) And that was really at the brutal, brutal end of it all. So much so that when I was working at CBS with Charlie Rose, he was practicing Lamaze techniques on the side of the sofa next to me. You know, there's one other thing though that that really makes being here today special. It's because as a journalist, you don't often get to offer personal opinions on public issues. And I'm gonna make an exception today because I am absolutely opposed to violence against women. Who in their right mind isn't? It is absolutely not a two-sided issue. What do we think about this problem and where do we begin to look for solutions? Well, certainly the support of forums like the Westminster Town Hall and organizations like Violence Against Women Coalition, we can have a greater understanding of the problem and what we can do as mothers, as fathers, sisters, brothers, employers, students, workers, teachers, advocates, or simply concerned citizens to solve the problem. Ellen Foley has shown us what effect a single individual can have. And for that reason, I made Ellen get up early this morning and join me on the Today Show because I thought that what she has done and what all of you have done here in Minneapolis is an example that people can follow across the country. After Ellen's sister Mary was, was murdered, Ellen started working tirelessly to help herself, to help her family, to help her community. And all those she comes in contact with to have a better understanding of the ever-growing incidence of violence against women. As founder of the Violence Against Women Coalition, Ellen and a handful of Twin Cities women from the Junior League have banded together to communicate the problem, but most importantly, to develop solutions, both to stem the growth of the problems that affects us today, and to change the way that we teach future generations. In Ellen's words, as she told me today on the Today Show, to teach our little boys to respect little girls, and to teach our little girls to respect themselves. Important lesson in that. She began her work as a way of dealing with the pain and the grief of losing her sister in such a tragic way. I'm not so sure I could do it. Everybody deals with grief differently. She came out fighting. She has started in just three short years after her sister was murdered, a community-wide grassroots effort that clearly has the potential to become a national effort. Victims, educators, social service providers, legislators, religious leaders, corporate employees, and parents are all combining resources to eliminate the causes of violence. As Ellen and the Violence Against Women Coalition expand their effort, they've invited you and me to get involved in helping to solve the problem. And like many of you, I'm a parent. I have two children, as Dr. Meisel said. Andrew is four and three quarters, thank you very much. Don't you dare say four and a half, it's four and three quarters. And Alex Ray is 15 months old. My husband and I are both in the news business. And like many working couples, you know, we have to spend our weekdays at work away from the kids. But we really try to devote our evenings and our weekends to family time. And the pressure that we feel to be there with our kids and be there for our kids is probably very similar to what all of you go through as well. I think it's something that all parents share. When I was pregnant with Andrew, I had to make changes. As a a news correspondent, caffeine and and saccharin are primary food groups. You can't do that when you're pregnant. You could, but people bother you about it. A lot. People bother you about a lot of things when you're pregnant they police you. Make sure that you're not wearing high heels. Make sure that you're doing the right thing for your baby. And they're right because you do have to protect your baby. But what I'm finding is my two babies are growing up is how much easier it would be if they just stay small because as they get older, it's so much tougher to protect them. As any of you who have four-year-olds or who have had four-year-olds know, they can move faster and wreak greater havoc than some of the most severe storms that you've seen come through the Twin Cities. And wreaking havoc is one of the things that my Andrew excels at. Whether it is getting nine stitches in his lip at the Democratic National Convention or supergluing his mouth shut He knows how to draw a crowd. Actually, fortunately for me in the medical world, he didn't like the taste of it. So instead of gluing it shut, he kind of glued it open. With his tongue sort of stuck to his chin. And it happened in an instant. My father was visiting for Thanksgiving and as my father does on every trip, he fixes everything has broken from the last visit. And he had all the broken vases and toys out on the kitchen table, and a, not a small thing of super glue, but a big thing of super glue on the table. And he, My father could not get the top off. And, is that how you do that? My father could not get the top off. <laughs> I like that. For those of you in radio, she's signing next to me. I'm learning a lot as I stand here. But in the instant that my father turned around to grab a butter knife, Andrew got the top off and chugged it. It's okay to laugh because he's okay now. It was scary at the time, but it became a comedy of errors that we could only laugh at hours and hours later because everyone who touched Andrew stuck to him. my father was the first to stick (laughs) i was the second but i wasn't completely stuck to andrew i had one hand stuck to the table (laughs) fortunately for my father and for me my husband was home and i yelled to him to come into the kitchen not to touch anyone (laughs) and to drive the car to the hospital I was able to pry my hand off the table, pry my hand away from Andrew, and rush him to the emergency room. And you know how parents are. They tend to panic. So I take the opposite approach. I tend to be overly calm so that I don't panic. And I walked in very quietly to the emergency room and some nice gentleman was at the counter with the nurse. So I stood there and I waited my turn. And finally, the man looked over his shoulder and did a tremendous double take when he realized that there was a, a boy next to him and his tongue glued to his chin. <laughs> but I was still standing there calmly, waiting my turn. And the nurse suddenly looked up and she did a double take and then disappeared. And the next thing I knew, there were men in white coats coming from all directions in the hospital. And they came and they stood and they pondered. They'd never seen this before. Nor did these medical wizards know what to do about it. And so finally, after what seemed like an hour of them staring at Andrew, someone said, better call Poison Hotline. And they did, and they came back. And they said, why don't we give him a glass of water and see if he can swallow? And that's all they could do for him. And in time, it wore off. And he was fine, it could have been a nightmare, but he was fine. But Andrew has a way of getting himself into trouble. And no matter how much you try to prevent Andrew, Andrew is going to be Andrew. He's like Ronald Reagan. (laughs) You have to let Andrew be Andrew. And it's a fine line that you walk as a parent to mold him and to help him and to tame him, if you will, and to still let Andrew be Andrew. Now, my daughter Alex is a lot easier, but she's not walking yet. If we go out, she still sticks close to my husband or to me. She doesn't venture away from us. And I know you can't prevent every fall or every bruise, but Alex is relatively safe now. Andrew's the one who was working to turn my hair gray. But I have no doubt that as Andrew gets older, he'll become more and more self-sufficient and more able to protect himself. Alex will be the one who potentially could become more vulnerable. I mean, look at the numbers. A young woman will have a one in two chance, a one in two chance of being violated by the age of 30. If she chooses to go to college, there's a one in seven chance that she could be raped. One in seven. And in 50% of the cases, it'll be by someone she knows. If you think about it, it is an absolutely chilling thought. But try taking the name of your daughter or a little girl you love and put her name in the sentence put her in that context, if it's not my daughter, it'll be my daughter's friend. If I have another daughter and it's one in two, which one will it be? Putting a name in the equation, putting a face to the statistic, brings that horrible problem in our society to life. Our daughters have a 50% chance of being violated before the age of 30. As parents, we certainly all try to teach our children how to respect themselves and each other. We're vigilant about whom and what they're exposed to and how that will influence the way they develop and the way they grow. We try to build the best possible foundation so that when they're able to make the proper decisions for their own lives, they'll be able to do it when the time comes. What we cannot do is protect them from the forces that will act against them as they grow up. For now, you know, I may worry over a skinned knee or a bumped forehead. But what lies ahead for my kids and for your kids is much more ominous than that. Obviously, as a woman, as a mother, and as a journalist, I'm concerned about it. As Dr. Meisel told you, I host the NBC News program called A Closer Look. And since the show went on at the end of January, we've done a number of programs that have dealt directly with the subject of violence against women. Rape, campus rape, wife battering, child abuse, children who become abusers, sexism. The idea is to inform and empower our viewers And in order to do that, we cannot, and do not, shrink away from the tough issues. But we, on a closer look, also try to take the process a step further. It's the whole philosophy of what we set out to do. We also try to look for solutions. So often, even as a newscaster, which is what my background is, I would get to the end of 30 minutes after telling problem after problem after problem, and I would feel absolutely helpless. Realizing that other people feel that way too, we set out in the very beginning to include the solution if there is one. If it's a general solution, if it's a natural solution, if it's an individual solution. If it's even saying, how someone got out of a particular situation, we try to do it. In April, we did a half an hour on juvenile sex offenders. Most adult sex offenders start out that way. 90% in fact, begin exhibiting deviant sexual behavior as kids, sometimes as early as six years old, 90%. And we talked about the problem, we talked about the crisis, But we also talked about ways you can detect it if you're a parent, and break the pattern. What is normal behavior, and how do you know when it's not normal? We brought a psychologist on to explain that to parents. And we also profiled an early intervention program where they take kids as early as 10, 11, and 12 who are showing these signs, and right then, intervene and try to break the cycle. That may help down the road. It's too early to to really tell, but it's a worthwhile program and that's the way we wanted to present the problem, the horrible story and the solution. In June, we devoted a broadcast to the crisis facing battered women who fought back, killed their husbands or their boyfriends and ended up in jail for it. The women were being released from prison, and we talked about the issues involved in that, with governors commuting sentences. But we also talked about the ways that women can get them out of, themselves out of abusive relationships before it's too late. Do you know, so often you hear someone say, "Well, if they're being abused, if they're being bas- battered, why don't they just get up and leave? Why don't they just walk out the door?" not turn back. Do you realize that 70 perpo- 75% of the women who end up killed die as they're leaving or right after they leave? That's why they don't just get up and walk out the door. It is not that easy. Mail from our viewers tell us that it's difficult And as disturbing as these topics can be, as a community, we have to deal with them. Some of the calls and the letters we get are actually gut-wrenching, worse than any story we've told on the air. And women who thank us for telling their stories, thanking us because they've been put through the same types of situations that we discuss, like rape and battery and other violent acts. Our viewers understand that there's an inordinate number of violent acts presented through television in both entertainment and news coverage, and that there is a need for that same medium, television, to present the discussion of cause and correction in a format that is factual and that is clear. Remarkably enough, in the time it takes me to make this speech, somewhere in the United States, Five women will be raped, and 120 will be beaten by a husband or a boyfriend. Domestic violence is the single largest cause of injury to women in this country. Last week I called the National Coalition on Television Violence, and they tell me it was a pretty average week for violence. Roughly nine violent acts per hour were depicted in prime time during the week. Now, you multiply that number by 40 million television sets that are tuned in during prime time, and what you have is an enormous number, an enormous number of impressions being made. If you watch the shows, you cannot help coming away with the impression that violence is the only way to solve a whole range of interpersonal problems. There are studies that say that those impressions do make a difference, although inconclusive. But flip on the TV set and take away the adult, because a lot of households today are like that. And just what sort of message do you think children and young people are getting from what they see? Children do develop ideas from what they see and what they hear. They do take their cues on what is acceptable behavior from television. And the media clearly has an obligation to examine its role in violence against women. I do think that creative people in television are making changes in the way they think about violence. I think it has certainly been helped by the fact that there are more and more women in decision-making positions and in creative positions. We've seen movies, we've seen television series breaking new ground, confronting difficult and even ugly topics in an effort to inform viewers. Series like LA Law, have explored both the legal and emotional issues involved in violence against women, all about Amelia. A few years ago, a made-for-TV movie about the all-too-real tragedy of child abuse made a difference. They do a good job, a good job of raising consciousness. And our young people are going to get a message from that as well, a positive message. We make a big deal about the, the fact that The women in our society have come such a long way so quickly. I've given so many speeches on the topic myself. Women now earn big salaries. They go out alone at night. They no longer live with their parents until they're married. But all progress brings risk. But the price that some women are paying for progress is unacceptable because the attitudes of too many men are not changing as quickly as the society around them. And a lot of folks believe there's not much you can do about it. They say you can't change societal attitudes in a single generation. That they would have us give up on the grown-ups and focus all of our efforts on the young, all of our efforts on the future. It's nice and tidy, but you can't do it that way. We can't live in the future. Your daughters who are heading off for college can't either. Changing societal attitudes is going to be tough, but violence against women is intolerable. There are no two ways about it. And it has to be dealt with now, and it can be dealt with now. Just look at what Candy Leitner and Mad Mothers Against Dunk Driving, has done, and what they have taught us about changing attitudes. When I was in school, no one realized how dangerous it was to get in the car with a person who had been drinking. We weren't told about it. Kids today are fully aware of the risks, even if they still choose to take them. There's something in the back of their mind that says, this is a dangerous situation that I'm entering into. Mothers Against Drunk Driving did that. And like the fight against drunk driving, the fight against violence needs to be waged on several fronts, in the streets, in the courts, in the legislatures, on all levels. There are roles for corporations, there are roles for private citizens, there are roles for everyone, and there are roles for television. We all have to play a role to bring about a quick change in public attitude toward violence against women. And we don't all necessarily have to become public crusaders. Attitudes are forged at such a young age, and we all have so much to do with how our kids turn out. The Rhode Island Rape Crisis Center recently polled 1,700 ninth graders about their attitudes on violence against women. Do you know that more than half of the boys and almost as many girls thought that it was okay for a man to force a woman to have sex if they'd been dating for six months? ninth graders. More than half of the boys and nearly half the girls think it's OK for a man to force a woman to kiss him if he spent a lot of money on her. And they defined what a lot of money was, anywhere from 10 to $15. And half of the boys and half of the girls agreed that a woman walking alone at night is asking to be raped. Ninth graders, I wonder what answers you would get if you put those questions to your kids. You may be just as shocked by the answers, and maybe by asking the question, you open up the discussion so that you can change those misperceptions. Charity may not always begin at home. but That's where the effort to change attitudes about violence against women has to start. If we want to make a better world for our daughters, we're going to have to raise our sons better so that they respect women and so that they think of women as their absolute equals. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Faith Daniels. I was moved by much of what you said, shocked by not a little of it. I will remember always the line, teach little boys to respect little girls and teach little girls to respect themselves. I think that's a bellwether. While you in the audience are handing your questions to the ushers, which is to happen right now, and while those of you who must leave are doing so, let the radio audience be reminded That you've been listening to a special town hall forum originating today from the marriott city center in downtown minneapolis our speaker is faith daniels news anchor for the nbc today show and key person in the midday program a closer look her topic with us today violence against women the media perspective the co-sponsors of today's forum are the westminster town hall forum and the Violence Against Women Coalition, a project of the Junior League of Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, forum moderator. Uh, Ms. Daniels, would you do us the kindness of returning to the podium and we can be, begin to field some, some questions. While they are coming forward, let me pose one. Uh, a colleague of mine told me that I would not be fit to. Uh, moderate this forum if I hadn't seen Thelma and Louise. I have not seen it, but I gather you have. <laughs> Would you be willing to comment on it?
1: How many of you have seen Thelma and Louise? Mine. I'm seeing lots of women. Okay, now how many men have seen Thelma and Louise? Okay, I have, ooh, a dozen? <laughs> not even. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, all of you men who responded, yes, how many of you liked it? Everybody. Anybody who didn't like it? Couple of women, couple of women, couple of women, no men. Interesting. Thelma and Louise is not a documentary. (laughs) Having said that, It is a feel-good movie for every woman who has ever been whistled at in a construction site, has been embarrassed by a man in public because she was a woman. It's what in the back of your mind you always wanted to do, is it not? Now here's where I think Thelma and Louise shows progress. Yes, people have said that it's male bashing. And okay, men don't come out so great. (laughs) Can we all agree on that? But 10 years ago, would you have been able to tell that story? And in 1991, would you have been able to make that same movie if the roles were reversed? If two men crossing the country, slamming women along the way. If you made it, if it got to the theaters, I guarantee you I would be in the picket lines. And I think a lot of other people would be picketing theaters, outraged that women could be depicted that way. So if it has raised hairs on the back of some men's necks, is it because they never before have had to sit through a movie where women were battering them, where women had the dominant role, where women were getting over on them? Is it uncomfortable because they're not used to seeing it portrayed that way in the reverse? Maybe, but it started an awful lot of interesting dinner discussions.
0: Thank you. Rock music has become a special area of concern for educators and child health professionals. Do you have any perspective on, on that part of what goes over the media?
1: I'm so out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we're doing a closer look uh, next week on the topic of, of music and what kids are listening to and watching, but I must admit that it's way beyond me now in such a short period of time. Certainly, I think that there are messages in music that can be harmful. I think many messages can be harmful if they're misinterpreted, but I still understand and have not been able to find anyone who can explain to me why one person can hear a violent message in music or in television or elsewhere and still be fine, discount it, put it in perspective, and how another person can take that to heart and mimic the behavior. I think it's more complicated than that.
0: Another question from the audience. How can we change society's attitudes on women when pornography is allowed to pervade our society and be protected by the First Amendment?
1: That's a typical question for a journalist. (laughs) Because as a journalist, we must defend the First Amendment. And pornography is not clear cut. Some people's art is other people's pornography. We saw it with Robert Mapplethorpe and that controversy. It is not clear cut. There are certainly limits in terms of what you want to see and what you don't want to see. But whether that's an issue that we can deal with in a legislative way, or whether it's an issue we must deal with in a personal way, I'm not sure.
0: This is a tangential question. Uh, the person speaks about concern about pornography, realizing there are, there are some limits, but then says, why are there not laws restricting the depiction of violence beyond a woefully inadequate movie rating system?
1: Well, there are movie rating systems out there. There are guidelines now for people to follow. It's, it, the whole thing is very, very, very complicated. And it's difficult for a journalist to say that somebody should not have the right to express themselves. Very difficult. Are there things that offend me? You betcha. Can it be legislated and dealt with? I don't know. It's so subjective.
0: Thank you. You You've spoken about the progress women have made moving ahead personally and professionally. Has this compounded the problem of violence against women?
1: If I said yes to that, I'd make women a victim all over again. And I'm not gonna do it. Mm -hmm. We made progress, so be it. In Making progress if we had to put ourselves in situations where we were vulnerable, you bet but I'm not gonna go crawl back in a hole because of it. I think that we came out, we worked to achieve equal status, probably not there yet. And as a result, we've had to pay a price for that progress. But this is the next step. Now you have those same women who have come this far standing up and saying enough is enough, now we've gotta take action. And as women have made progress, they've put themselves in more vocal positions where they can stand up and make those statements and make a difference now. Thank
0: you. These questions are related. How can we reach more men to pay attention to this issue? And tangentially, there is a conspicuous absence of men in the audience today. What do you think the reason is?
1: Is there a baseball game on? (laughs) No? I do see some men though, and that's encouraging because this is not a women's issue. There are very few issues left that are women's issues. The subject is child abuse. That's a concern of both parents. If it's violence against women, That should definitely be a concern of men as well as women. And I think you get their attention across the dinner table. And I think you get their attention in the workplace. And I think you get their attention when you're dealing with your children. My husband and I really view each other as equals in parenting. But there will never be equality in parenting because he doesn't care if we're out of milk. He doesn't care if there's no bread in the bread drawer. But if I go away out of town for two or three days, I'll come back and the kids and my husband will be fine. There will be dishes stacked all the way to the ceiling, but my kids and my husband will be fine. There's never gonna be complete parity in the home. But having said that, I really do believe that my husband and I are equal in terms of parenting. yet, I have heard my son, from the time he could talk, draw a distinction between men and women. From the time he could talk, having no idea where he would come up with these things about why I couldn't go in the backyard and play ball too. Mommy, you're a girl. What does that mean, Andrew? Can't go. Watch me. But it's step by step, inch by inch, that we have to and can make the difference.
0: Thank you. Uh, This is a two-part card. It it says at the bottom also, little boys need to be taught to respect themselves before they can respect little girls. (laughs) Do you wish to comment on that or we just move along?
1: I don't see as many violent acts occurring against men. I agree wholeheartedly with the comment, but I don't think that's where our focus needs to be. Mm -hmm.
0: Then the writer continues, even though they have good special programs on tapes around violence against women, what is your opinion on the everyday papers and local news coverage on specific crimes against women?
1: Well, I think it varies from city to city, from paper to paper. It would be very difficult for me to make a statement to you having not routinely read Minneapolis newspapers that you're exposed to here, I think that we all have an obligation to cover it and to to cover it fairly. What causes the hair on the back of my neck to go up is when someone is offended because I've covered a tough topic because they'd rather not hear about it because it bothered them, it disturbed them and they would rather just not acknowledge its existence. You can't do that. You can't sugarcoat life. And as appalling as a violent act may be if it's portrayed on television, the newscast, maybe one person will watch it and say, that's terrible, and do something about it, or not repeat the act, or go get help.
0: Perhaps this ties in with what you just said. What can we do as television viewers to steer the media toward quality programs that teach equality for women rather than sensationalizing the violence that it seems they would rather cover?
1: You all have more power than you ever know. Uh You may think that you don't have control over what happens on television, but you do. You get off the sofa and you turn it off or you click to another channel And if people do that in great numbers, those kinds of programs will not make their way to television because it's a business. And the idea of putting television programs on the air is that so people can see the commercials and advertisers will pay them money and they will make money. If nobody's watching, advertisers don't want to be associated with it. And what we have seen in the past few years is that advertisers are very, very concerned about the content of the program placing their ads. And they're aware that it can have a negative impact on their product if the television program is not up to snuff. But turn it off, write a letter, make a phone call, get involved.
0: A member of the audience says, writes, thank you for helping me break helping to break the silence which perpetuates violence against women. And then the question, when should a rape victim be named?
1: Very difficult topic. At NBC News, they recently, after much soul searching, named the rape victim in the Palm Beach case. It was a tough decision. There were many, many people involved in the decision on many different levels. There were women in on the decision-making process. NBC News president, Michael Gartner, felt and feels very, very strongly about this issue. Long before this particular case came up, Michael had written commentary after commentary in the newspaper saying that we as a society must destigmatize rape. It is not a sex crime, it is a violent crime. It is not something that you should be ashamed of any more than if you were mugged or murdered. It is not an embarrassment, it's a violent crime. And as I told Michael, I agree in theory with that 100%. And Michael feels that our generation of women has to once again pay the price of progress. We have to carry the burden of destigmatizing rape for the next generation. And I agree with that in theory. But rape isn't being perpetrated on a generation of women. It's happening to people, to individuals. And while I can say that I agree with it in theory, if I myself were raped, I would not want to be named. But I would also not want to be named if my house were burglarized, if I had been violated in any way, because I protect my privacy. I applaud women who stand up and come forward and say, I was raped, I got through it, you can get through it. But until rape is destigmatized, it seems to me that it still has to be a personal choice.
0: Thank you. Please discuss the relation between physical and economic violence against women.
1: I think I know who that question, who offered that question. Hi. <laughs> she asked me it uh, of me before we came in, in, in the door here. By economic violence against women, she's referring to child support payments and men strangling women financially. And that is a huge, huge problem. We did a, a show recently on deadbeat dads, and 85% of the men who are responsible for child support payments do not pay regularly. 85%, and that is another different form of abuse.
0: Someone raises the question about uh... Is there such a thing as violence against uh, men?
1: Absolutely. Do you know that when we did our show on battered women, the phone rang off the hook from battered men? True. And we got letters from men who say they've been battered. And in fact, we are doing a show in the fall on battered men. Violence is pervasive. Let's all face it, it's there. It has to be dealt with, but it's there.
0: Another question from the audience, what can parents do to counter the messages the media is giving, colon, our boys, giving our boys, women our sex object, and giving our girls appearance is overly important to attract men and boys. TV programming for children is still very very stereotypical. How can we put more girls in these programs? showing them as intelligent decision-makers able to shape their own futures.
1: It's certainly come a long way. If you look back to the 70s and what we were watching on television and laughing at and finding funny, it's offensive. Look at Three's Company. You know, the silly blonde, I thought that was amusing. I don't think we'd find that show amusing today. In the same way, many other aspects of society and television have changed. Do you know that recently CBS put on an anniversary special of All in the Family? Something that we all watched and laughed at in the 70s. And do you know that the censors wouldn't clear the episodes that had aired 20 years prior? The censors would not allow those to air. And finally, Norman Lear stepped forward and said, it aired 20 years ago. But in that 20 years, we have become more sensitive to how hurtful humor can sometimes be. We still have a long way to go. Most kids today are focused on Ninja Turtles. April's not a dumb woman, but she's not a Ninja Turtle. Why should my daughter not have a Ninja Turtle to look up to, a female Ninja Turtle? Why isn't there a woman out there doing karate chops, if you're gonna have it at all? In Ghostbusters, why should a black child be forced to play the part of Winston? It's gonna take a lot more years to change all of that.
0: What is your view? uh, I sensed it coming in something you just said. What is your view of media coverage of violence against women of color?
1: Violence against women knows no bounds. It's not a poor problem. It's a problem for everyone. And I think that we cover it as a problem for everyone. I don't see that we make a difference in that, mm-hmm. that we'd make the distinction.
0: Right. You've touched this in part, but perhaps we can revisit. You suggested that there are an appalling number of violent acts on TV. In your opinion, do news reports and graphic details fall into this category as well?
1: I have a real problem with people who tell me that I have to report a murder story in a neat, tidy fashion. Because murder's not neat and tidy. Do you have to go overboard and be overly graphic? No. But so often in primetime television, murder is neat and tidy. Somebody shoots a gun, somebody falls on the ground, commercial break. No pain, no agony, no grieving relatives, no children without their dads, neat and tidy. Television news, I think, helps to balance it in that often you'll see the grieving family, you'll see the pain of the violent act. You'll see someone like Ellen Foley who has lost her sister because of a violent act. And if someone looks at a shot of a body on the ground covered by a sheet, am I gonna dwell on it? No. Do I look for body shots in a story? No. But if it's one graphic image that grabs you and affects you and changes your attitude about it and shows you that there's pain and agony associated with death, then so be it. You know, during the bombing in Beirut, when we lost 260 Marines, Television was taken to task in every newspaper across the country for showing the Marine walking to the door, knocking on the door, and telling that family that they had lost their loved one. Those same newspapers had the same picture on the front page of their paper. Why were people offended by what they saw on television and didn't raise an eyebrow over what they saw in the newspaper. Same scene, because television is more powerful, because television has sounds, it has movements, and it can grab people in a way that a print picture cannot. It's not all bad. It's not all bad. If you simply say 260 people were killed and you walk away and close the book, those people are a statistic, and you don't see the pain and suffering that is caused by death. And I feel very, very strongly that all sides of it had to be told. Will I break down a person's door and force them to talk to me after they've gone through a terrible tragedy? Absolutely not. But you would be surprised, as I have been surprised, to find out how many times people who have gone through a tragedy want to talk about it, want to tell other people what has happened to them so that other people can be helped. And it's a catharsis in a way for them. And it seems to me from what I've seen that somehow feeling that their loved one was important enough to have the media interested in makes it feel more important that they didn't just die needlessly and no one noticed. Somebody noticed that they died.
0: A question from the floor. 52% of marriages end in divorce. 80% of mothers have primary custody Does this mean that dysfunctional behavior, violence, abuse is being taught by a mother?
1: May I defer?
0: You certainly may. Um, Thank you. We've spoken a number of times, you and I today, of Mary Foley as a victim of violence and of Ellen Foley, her sister, who really has become the, uh, is the spark behind the uh, Minneapolis Junior League's effort, namely its uh, violence against women coalition. And Ellen wrote an article in the spring 1990 Minneapolis uh, Leaguer, and I'd like to read the conclusion of that article uh, as a conclusion of this forum. She writes, On bad days, I try to keep in mind the letter I received from the widow of an AIDS victim who, through her own grief, touched and inspired me to keep going. She reminded me of a famous saying of Mother Jones, which offers a practical and succinct vision for the survivors of tragedies like ours. Pray for the dead, Mother Jones said, and fight like hell for the living. We thank you, Faith Daniels, for joining the fight for the living and for inspiring us the more to join the fray.